as a lifelong Protestant type Christian, I can say with pretty good authority that we Protestants have a kind of spiritual amnesia. We might know the names of a missionary or two from our tradition, maybe a famous pastor from the last couple hundred years, but we have lost touch with the thousands of years of Christians who have every bit as much or maybe more to teach us than someone like Billy Graham or Adoniram Judson or John Wesley. And and I think we're kind of lesser for it for not knowing more and more of the saints of old. I mean, for one thing, our ideas about what it even means to be a Christian are often pretty small and confined. Our ideas, they, they end up looking and sounding a whole lot like our one particular experience and really ignoring the beautiful diversity of how Christians have understood their faith and, and how they have experienced God in different times and in and different cultures across our globe. In other words, we tend to have kind of a small view of the Christian household. In our minds, Christianity, it just sort of looks like this little corner closet that we have spent our entire lives in. We've never even seen the dining room. We didn't know there was a guest bedroom or many of the other bedrooms that that, that make up the whole Christian household. And so when we come up with an unfamiliar idea or an unfamiliar idea starts floating around the church, an idea like, well, what if there is no literal hell? Or what if all people will be saved at the end? Or what if the cross means something different than I had ever believed? Or what if Jesus is the Son of God in the same sense that you and I are children of God? When we bump up against unfamiliar ideas, our first impulse is to think, well, those are not Christian ideas, they're heresies. Or also to think, if I'm really drawn towards that idea, or I know someone who has, then I or they might just have to leave the Christian household. Different ideas can sound kind of dangerous, can't I? Can't they? And I sort of think that's tragic because no one ever told us that those ideas have had a home in the larger Christian household for centuries. They've just lived in rooms we've never visited with people we've never heard about. And some of those people are even considered some of the greatest saints and Christian leaders of the church. But there's another reason that I think is is maybe even more important for us to get to know some of the saints of old. And that's this. I'm convinced that there is a longing in us for someone to help guide us through all the messy, confusing, complex story that is our own life. I mean, let's be honest, who wouldn't really like to have Gandalf or Galadriel in our life right about now? Or who wouldn't like to spend a little bit of time learning from Master Yoda every year? Or wouldn't it be really great if you could just just go make an appointment to go spend an hour with Professor McGonagall or Professor Dumbledore and ask a few questions that you've been really wrestling with in this time. There is a longing for wise souls 
to guide us down the messy endeavors of our lives, to help us see things differently. And the thing is, the church has been full of these kinds of people. We just haven't been introduced to them. And so once again, this November, we're going to spend some time in the company of some saints of old, some that are men and women, some European, some American, some that are black, some that are white, some who have been formally recognized as saints, most who haven't. And my hope is that the little introductions that we'll be getting each week will spark your interest and and maybe introduce you to someone who will become a friend, a companion, and a guide to you along the way. Well, this morning I want to introduce you to a uneducated young French woman who only lived to be 24 years old, but she actually became one of only three women to have broken through the patriarchy of the Roman Catholic Church and to receive the highest recognition and be declared not just a saint, but a doctor of the church. And that woman is Teresa of Lisieux. Now, This Teresa is not to be confused with Teresa of Avila, who you may have heard of and is one of the other three women declared a doctorate of the church. And she's also not to be confused with Mother Teresa of Calcutta of our time. Teresa of Lisieux, she lived near the end of the 19th century in France, and she's sometimes known as the little flower, and you'll hear why in a little bit. But her spiritual autobiography that came out shortly after she died of tuberculosis, it has inspired countless Christians, not because of something heroic that she did or some great profound ministry that she started, but actually because of the opposite. Teresa of Lisieux helps us to recover a spirituality of imperfection, a spirituality that most of us can relate to. She she teaches us about the extraordinary feat of practicing kindness and grace and love in some of the simplest ways and with some of the hardest people and in that ordinary daily grind of our lives. Now, Teresa, she was born to parents who had had four miscarriages before her. So She was cherished as a newborn, but tragedy did come to her life early on. A few months after she was born, her mother developed breast cancer and could no longer nurse her, so she spent that early year mostly in the care of a wet nurse. And then by the time she was just four years old, her mother died. And some of those dynamics of that disconnection and that loss, that started to shape a little girl who became very insecure and, and very sensitive. She, she had this deep need to please other people in order to feel safe and, and connected to them, which could also lead to some very dramatic behavior when those insecurities got triggered. She could sometimes just erupt in tears and, and shame over the smallest thing, feeling so guilty and bad. And, and then after she'd have that kind of emotional outburst, she, she'd just feel more guilt and more shame about being so needy all the time. It was sort of this vicious emotional cycle. And and so she would try to stuff all those emotions down, but that just made things worse. 
It actually created a kind of mild depression that followed her around in those formative years of her life. And and she was trapped in that. These insecurities, this sort of self-consciousness, these emotional outbursts. In fact, Richard Rohr says that Teresa, she didn't have emotions. Her emotions had her. You know what that's like, maybe? When your emotional patterns just seem to take over and they push you and they pull you in all kinds of ways that we can't quite seem to stop. Maybe you're someone who's easily hurt by people or easily offended or self-conscious a lot. Or, or maybe for you, that's not it. Maybe it's the flashes of anger that come over and possess you. Or maybe it's just the sadness that yanks you down, but that emotion, it has you. Teresa said that that time in her life from 4 to 14 years old was the most painful period of her life, always feeling trapped and overly sensitive, trying to stuff those feelings down, the mild depression, the overreactions, the insecurity of always trying to be that perfect little girl to do things right, to make the adults of her life, her dad, her sisters, the other people around her happy with her, always trying to be liked in order to feel safe, to feel like she mattered. It was all so much. But it was actually those very experiences that God used to transform her and became the backdrop of her own great path to love. You see, one Christmas Eve on the way home from Midnight Mass, just a week maybe before she turns 14, Teresa overheard her father make a comment to one of her sisters, Celine, an older sister, Well, fortunately, this will be the last year, her father said. And he was talking about this little tradition they had where Teresa would pretend to still believe in Santa and open all of her presents with this kind of excitement just to sort of please her father. She thought it made him happy. But with that one offhand remark, she had this sudden flash of guilt and shame about that. She thought, that she was maybe being a burden to her dad. And and that little sensitive, insecure heart of hers just shattered. But at the same time, at the same moment of that shame, something unexpected also happened. Something she had been praying for. Rather than bursting into tears and, and running upstairs, which would have been her normal pattern, something suddenly shifted in her. This new a sense of grounding, this new personhood was given to her, and she says it was given in love from Christ. It was like suddenly she had this rootedness about herself that she hadn't known before. And and so, yes, she had this flash of shame and guilt with those side-whispered words from her father, but there was something else there now, too. And so she was able to receive that and hear that, but yet be calm, to hold it together and let it be, and then even move forward that night and still joyfully play along with their family tradition. She, she actually describes this shift 
as, as the great conversion moment of her life. And I know that might seem a little strange because it, it seems like sort of a small thing for, for many of us, but it was in that moment that she, she became liberated from the tyranny of always being defined by others. The tyranny of those constantly shifting tides of someone else's opinion of you. Her, her selfhood became grounded in love. And for the first time in her life, she, she wasn't just carried away by every passing emotion. Now, the truth is, that's actually a shift that most of us haven't quite completely made. And, and maybe some of us don't even recognize that we need to make. We don't always realize just how much we are controlled or how much of our selfhood we just sort of give away to the opinions and the words of other people. But we do that, don't we? Some critical response from our spouse, some offhand remark at work, and we're hooked. We're off, aren't we? Our emotions have us. Or maybe it's a snarky remark from a family member or or some embarrassment in front of your friends or colleagues, maybe some failing. Maybe there's a tweet or a post on on social media and, and we don't have our emotions anymore. Our emotions have us. They yank us away. That had always been the case for Teresa. Ever since she was little, that need for esteem and approval, it was so deeply rooted in her. But on that Christmas, the love of Christ freed her from that. And it opened up a new way for her, a a kind of spirituality that the church had actually lost sight of in her time and I think in our time. It, It became this spirituality of imperfection. You see, in her time, a lot like in our own time, so much of the church was caught up in a perfectionist spirituality, one that strived to meet God's expectations or strived to meet the expectations of the church, expectations that were often impossible to really meet. But it was a spirituality that was always striving to be right and righteous, Richard Rohr actually describes it as a spirituality that is focused on achievement and performance, attainment and willpower. Kind of sounds to me a lot like the American ethos, the American spirit, right? Achievement, performance, attainment and willpower. But the thing is, a spirituality that's always striving like that, that's striving after perfection, will almost always make us rigid, not more loving. Gerald May actually describes it as a difference between a willful spirituality, a willful posture towards God of pushing and striving ourselves and other people versus a willing posture before God, a willing spirituality of of openness and trust. And that's the kind of shift that Teresa experienced and later writes about and helps so much of the church then to begin to rediscover. She began to make peace with not meeting other people's expectations, not even meeting the expectations that she'd placed on herself or the expectations of her concept of God. Instead, she just began to simply trust Trust that God would change her in God's own timing. 
Jesus showed me the road that leads to God's love, she wrote. And this road is the surrender of the little child who sleeps without fear in its father's arms. In another place, she writes that the only perfection that's real is learning just to embrace our nothingness, our imperfection, or to to use her words, to recognize one's nothingness and just to abandon oneself as a child into God's arms. Stop striving, she's telling us. Stop pushing. Stop demanding so much of yourself and others. Just abandon yourself into the love of God. It seems to me that this is what Jesus was describing as he talks about becoming like children. It's a trusting the love of God, like a child fully trusts their parent, trusting that God's love will always hold us. It's that lack of any self-consciousness before the love of God. Maybe the way that that young child can feel completely at ease, bearing themselves without any clothes, running around the house before their parents. There's no insecurity. There's no shame or self-consciousness. A little one can just run around like that without a second thought to it. You must become like a little child, Jesus teaches us. And Teresa of Lisseau shows us what that can look like. She actually begins to practice a kind of childlike trust in God's goodness and a childlike trust in the way that she would love other people. And those two things, they always go hand in hand. You see, the more that we know we are loved, the more that we can surrender to that divine love and just rest in it and trust it, the more we are actually able to love others with that same kind of childlike simplicity. And that's what Teresa began practicing doing. Teresa actually decided that she wanted to dedicate her whole life to serving Christ. She actually wanted to do something really great and really grand for God. And in her mind, that meant becoming a priest or becoming a missionary. Those were the the things that she held up to, the people that she looked up to the most. In her minds, missionaries and priests were the super Christians. Only those paths were not really open to her. So all she could do was actually join a convent and become a nun and and be content with that. And, And it didn't seem nearly as heroic or exciting, those hours of praying and living in a community like that. But it did help her to make peace with the reality that God doesn't actually ask us for heroics or flashy, big spiritual achievements. What God simply asks of us is that we learn to love as we have been loved. And, you know, I think that a lot of us have similar notions that Teresa did. I mean, maybe we don't want to become a priest or a missionary. Maybe we do. But probably most of us want to do something that matters in this world, maybe something that's worth being remembered and and something that helps us to be noticed. It's a normal kind of longing, and it comes from different places in our souls, It might be a deep-rooted need for esteem and affection. It might mean it might come from some place where you, you just need to prove something to yourself or to someone else. Maybe you're just afraid of wasting this life of yours. I don't know. But that drive to achieve, 
to have some legacy that, that's left behind, to make something really significant out of your life and, and to prove yourself to God. It's there for a lot of us. It surfaces in different ways. And, and certainly we tend to think of saints, of all people, the great saints, as the people who have done that, right? If you're going to be a saint, then you've got to have done something extraordinary for God, some great sacrifice, something that catches the world's attention, let alone catches God's attention. But Teresa, she discovers something else. Becoming a saint just requires living the life that we are given as humbly and graciously and loving towards others as we can. In fact, one of, in one of her more famous passages, she compares that desire to do something really great for God, that desire for spiritual heroics, to the desire of a flower to be a rose or a lily, instead of just a daisy. Only the world would be much less of a beautiful place if all the flowers were roses and lilies, right? If there were no daisies or no violets. This is how she describes that. Jesus showed me the splendor of the rose and the whiteness of the lily. Do not take away from the perfume of the little violet or the delightful simplicity of the daisy. I understood that if all the flowers wanted to be roses, nature would lose her springtime beauty and the fields would no longer be decked out with little wildflowers. And so it is in the world of souls in Jesus' garden. He willed to create souls comparable to lilies and roses, but he's also created other ones, those that must be content to be daisies and violets that are destined to give joy to God's glances when, when God looks down. Perfection, she writes, it consists in simply doing God's will and being what God wills us to be. And so that's what she did. She joined a convent, and on the surface, she seemed like no one in particular. She had no special role. She started no great movement. But what she did was take those daily circumstances of her life and found a way in them to practice love and grace and allow that daily practice to become her own path to holiness. I applied myself to practicing little virtues, not having the capability of practicing great ones, she said. 